Having a baby is meant to be the most joyful time of your life, but for many mums and dads it can be the hardest and at times the darkest of places. Welcome to Season 2 of Blue Mum Days, the podcast for anyone struggling with parenting. All the stories shared here are from the heart. These are real conversations and may be triggering, so please listen with discretion. We will also signpost you to help in the show notes. Thank you. This episode was recorded during the spring of 2022. Today's guest is Christine Cunningham, founder and director at Perinatal Wellbeing Ontario in Canada. Christine also works as a perinatal mental health therapist in private practice. She hosts a weekly podcast, Perinatal Wellbeing, where she interviews guests around all things perinatal mental health and wellbeing. Christine lives with her husband, three boys and two dogs in Ontario. She suffered with postpartum anxiety and depression after her third son was born. Luckily, she was able to recover and be well again with medication and therapy. Christine was also diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 40, which has been very helpful in explaining many of her struggles in her day-to-day life as well as in parenting. That experience changed Christine's life for the better. She returned to school and trained to become a perinatal counsellor, and she also set up her not-for-profit Perinatal Wellbeing Ontario. Just one thing to apologise to listeners, we are recording over Zoom, over the Atlantic Ocean, so there may be sort of bits of dropout, so apologies for that, but it's the only way I can get the amazing Christine on my podcast at the moment. So, (laughs) Hi Christine, welcome to Blue Mum Days, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi Vicky, thank you so much for having me on the podcast, I'm so excited. Oh, well, likewise, I'm a huge fan of your podcast and I'll make sure I put links in the show notes. You talk so eloquently, not only about your own experience, but actually interviewing guests, covering everything from ectopic pregnancies to intrusive thoughts, which is a really common factor in in perinatal mental health but I'm particularly interested to talk to you today about your experience in terms of getting an ADHD diagnosis and how that sort of impacted on how you felt about the experiences you'd had but before we get started can you just tell us a little bit about your background what you were like before you had children how it was with the first two sons and then how it changed with your third boy Absolutely. So before I had kids, I was young and carefree and no, I'm just kidding. But before I had kids, um, it's interesting because looking back, I can see now how anxiety was present in my life. And I noticed that a lot when people do seek support for postnatal anxiety, where we'll kind of do some looking back and they'll say the same thing. Anxiety has always been present, but then when we have it in the postpartum period, it seems like it's too much. It's too overwhelming, or maybe we get to this point where we can't manage anymore. So I definitely noticed that for myself. Um, I did not know. I didn't even have ADHD on the radar until about 33 when my oldest was diagnosed. And so I would always just say, oh, he's so much like me. He's so much like me. (laughs) And then he got his diagnosis and the psychiatrist is like, well, he either got it from you or his dad. 
And I'm like, well, he definitely didn't get it from his dad. His dad is very like calm and cool and collected. And so I started looking back. And so definitely in hindsight, I can see before having kids, how it was affecting my life. However, interestingly enough with my pregnancies, I was very chill and I thought I would be not chill because I always thought, oh my gosh, like I'm such a baby with pain or, you know, I complain a lot. Like I feel every somatic experience that I have, which I now know is common in ADHD. I think because we're so hyper aware of our own bodily sensations, our own emotions. So we just notice those things a lot more, but in pregnancy, I was like, okay, I got this. It's all good. And in labor and delivery, I was very calm, which I was not expecting at all. So that really surprised me. And I loved being pregnant. I loved laboring and delivering. You know, if I could have 10 babies and give them away to people who would like them or, you know, surrogacy, I thought of that. I would love to do that. But anyways, I I loved giving birth, which again can sound weird, but that was my experience. And um, interestingly enough, lower levels of estrogen can exacerbate our symptoms of ADHD. And so in pregnancy, we have high levels of estrogen. And so now I'm wondering, is that why I felt so chill? Because I had high levels of estrogen. There was a resident when I had my first baby and because they didn't believe that I was ready to push. So they didn't call my doctor. So my doctor got there just as he was delivered. So they had to get a resident from the ER who had never delivered a baby. And you could tell she was terrified. I am ready to push. Like I'm in the moment. And I say to her, it's okay. We can do this together. And she's looking at the nurse. Like, can I do this? I'm like, you can do it because you don't have a choice. (laughs) I have to do this. You do too. And I was like, totally chill, totally calm. It was all good. Oh my God. I mean, when you're at your most vulnerable and then you feel like you're putting your life in their hands and your child's life in their hands for them to go like first day of the job. You know, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think if it, it wasn't like pregnancy and delivery again, where maybe there was high levels of estrogen, which helped any other circumstance, I probably would have been freaking out you know? So anyways, that was interesting. It's amazing when you talk about, oh, my husband's so different to me. He's so chill. And yet the way you present yourself on your podcast and just chatting to you, you know, for a few minutes now, you seem so Zen. Wow. You know, I'm feeling soothed just listening to you talk. So. (laughs) Oh, thank you. That's a big compliment. Yeah. It's interesting. I think it just depends on the situation. Again, if I feel like I've got this, it's okay. Then let's just go with the flow. Whereas in situations where, you know, maybe I am out of my depth or I don't know what I'm doing, that's definitely where I can be more like super anxious or doubting myself. And so that was really interesting to me with my first two. I didn't doubt myself as a parent, which I know, again, sounds probably 
really strange. But I was like, I know I'm going to make mistakes. I was making mistakes. Of course I was. I didn't know what I was doing. But I always knew like deep down in my heart, in my core, that I'm the best mom for my boys. I knew that without a doubt. What was interesting after having and experiencing postnatal anxiety with my third was that doubt came in, you know, that intense guilt. Of course, the mom guilt was there, you know, before, but not to this intensity. And that was the first time where I doubted myself as a mom. You know, I, I had all those intrusive thoughts of not being a good enough mom. And so um, that is a big piece that I noticed was different with my first two than with after having my third. And that's something that has stuck with me that I still carry where sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing here, but not in a chill way, more like, oh God, what do I do? Yeah, I can't do this. And is that just with your third or is it generally as a mom now? Yeah, it's generally as a mom now with all of them. And now that I have a teenager, well, I have a teenager. The second one is going to be a teenager in a month. So, wow. um, yeah, room for doubt. my goodness. You, you do not look old enough to be a mom of a teenager, but that, that's a whole nother world. I'm dreading. I'm beginning to sense Stanley being slightly less into cuddles now. And if I sort of go to give him a kiss, I'm presented with the top of his head. It's like the head is thrust. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or I go in for a hug and I get like my middle one just he lets me hug him from behind. Okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh God. We'll have to do a whole separate podcast in a couple of years. Exactly, exactly. Um, it's interesting too. I did have the baby blues with my first, but that was really that textbook two weeks. And then you know, it's like I woke up the next day and the clouds had parted and the sun was shining and I felt completely fine. So that was really interesting because I'm able now to really understand the fundamental difference. Like the baby blues is not postpartum depression and postpartum depression is not the baby blues. So it's really like if those symptoms are extending beyond those couple of weeks, then that's where, you know, it's important to pay attention and just see what's going on. Right. But definitely with my first, you know, I, I like to be honest and open. And when I gave birth, I was in love and I was like, oh my God, I love him so much. And then the baby blues hit. And then I thought, oh my God, what have I done? Like we've made a huge mistake. He was planned. All three of my kids were planned, but like once I had him and he was on the outside, I thought, oh my gosh, can we just put him back in for like just a week? Like, give me a week to figure this out because I don't know what I'm doing. And I think it's so much more common than we talk about. And I think it's important just to normalize that. Like I can love my son and I can have major fear of being a parent or some days I don't want a parent right? Like, especially with teenagers, there's some days I'm like, I, I can't do this. I can't do it. Yeah. And that isn't something that necessarily stops after the first couple of years, because with your eldest, obviously every time they, they go through a new phase, it's the first time you're dealing with it. And I know from friends who have gone on to have two or, or three children that actually 
the new babies take care of themselves to an extent because I know what I'm doing now. I know how that bit works, but I'm chasing after my toddler who is going through a new phase and that is the mental anguish. Yeah, and it's so interesting you say that, Vicky, because I definitely felt that with my second and then, you know, with my third, I was having that same feeling again, like, okay, it's the third, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. Been there, done that. Even everyone around me was very like, you know, my doctor never asked like, how are you feeling emotionally, mentally? Those questions were never asked of me, even though I had major struggles with nursing. I had, that's another podcast episode, but major struggles with nursing which I believe impacted my mental health. You know, I was never asked. And even my doctor was like, oh, it's your third, even kind of preparing for labor and delivery or, you know, it was just, you've got this, but I didn't have it. (laughs) Um, And so that feeling of like, okay, third baby, I know more what I'm doing. We'll get into a routine easily. And then when that wasn't happening, I was like, what is wrong with me? What is going on? Because I couldn't get my shit together. I couldn't, you know, getting out the door with three kids was so hard, which let's just normalize. Like that's hard. That is hard, right? Especially like in the early days when it's probably Mm -hmm. taking you an hour to pack the bag, get everything ready, baby's ready and you get to the latch of the door and they poo themselves right up the back change the thing then they're hungry so you have to feed that yeah absolutely (laughs) and so it was like I'm thinking to myself well it's my third this should not be a problem like you can change a diaper you can get out the door you know you can deal with it if your kid poos right up their back and they need a bath and then you gotta you can do that but I wasn't able to and I didn't know why I didn't know that postpartum anxiety was present. And so it was more the judgment that I think was really hindering me that like, what's wrong with you? Just do it. Just get out of the house. Like, it's not a big deal. And it was a big deal. It felt impossible. And then I actually developed a fear of leaving the house with the three kids, of being alone with the three kids. Like, I can't handle this. I can't do it. And so that kind of like, okay, the baby can sort themselves out. And then you take care of the toddlers. In that case with my third, I couldn't even deal with my toddlers because I was so obsessed with nursing my third and getting it right for my last time that I actually couldn't deal with my toddlers. They had to be like hyper independent. I fed them and that was about it, to be honest with you. So that was a big struggle. How early did you realize you weren't coping or that something had changed this time? I knew like from when I gave birth, we left the hospital at like one o'clock in the morning. So here you are released from hospital 24 hours after delivery because they check the baby's hearing, they do their tests and then off you go. But so he was born like 11 30 at night. They did his ear hearing test at like around midnight. And so we could go at 1am, but the nurse was like, you can stay like, you're more than welcome to stay till the morning and like leave not under the cloak of darkness. And I was like, no, like Steven, get me out of here. I have to get out of here. And I was kind of like frantic. 
we left at 1 a.m. And like at that point, we had moved outside of the city. So we were an hour away from the hospital. The baby was crying the whole way home. And I was just like, I can't deal with this. I can't cope. So I knew like I was feeling off, but of course I was like, I just had a baby, like it's normal. And then that like feeling of, I can never get my shit together was present like very quickly, very, very quickly. But I just kept chalking it up to my challenges with nursing. Just keep trying harder, keep trying harder. You'll feel better. That's why you feel off because the nursing is not going well. I had to you know, I I've talked about this in my podcast too, but I had so many doctor's appointments constantly. So I'm like, okay, of course I feel off. Like I'm constantly running around. I have three kids, you know, the other two need my attention. Of course, no big deal. But I would say fairly quickly, even after a couple of weeks, the excessive crying, the excessive guilt, again, not being able to make a decision, which is for better or for worse is not me. Like I tend to make decisions quickly, you know, through impulsivity. Um, However, being stuck in decision-making is not something I was used to. That's a huge thing. That's certainly for me, Mm. that resonates so much. I remember being like paralyzed with fear, sort of on a daily basis, trying to decide what to dress baby Stanley in. And it's like, am I making the right choice? Is he going to be cold? Am I going to endanger him by having him in too many layers? That doesn't look right. Okay, I'm going to change. And still, I I don't think I've ever quite got my confidence in decision making back. And when you go from a, you know, a fairly (laughs) well-functioning human being to somebody that cannot make a decision like that or panics in the middle of a supermarket because they're like really overthinking every single choice about like which pasta brand to go with or yeah it's really crippling and really scary you're also looking at yourself from the outside thinking like why can't you make this decision like there was definitely a part of me that was present saying like Mm. you can make these decisions why aren't you doing it and there was that disconnect and I agree and Mm. you know I I take that into my work but also for myself is like that anxiety, you know, all those symptoms that we experienced take us away from ourselves because it's this part, right? It's the anxious part or it's the depression part. It's the mum part, right? It's not Vicky or Christine. So then you're doubting Vicky, right? Like these parts are doubting you maybe even a little bit still. And, and so it's, I think there's a lot of work and recovery after experiencing postnatal anxiety or depression or any of those PMADs in recovering from that experience and healing these trauma wounds sometimes. I don't know about you, but the fear of going back to that place was, I mean, it's still very present for me. However, in those first few years, it was terrifying. If I had a bad day, like mentally, where I wasn't feeling well, I would be so upset thinking, oh my gosh, it's happening. I'm going to be like how I was then. And I'm not going to cope now because I've, I've been doing okay. And if I slide back, I'm going to have to go in the hospital. Like what's the next step? You know, how much more can I be medicated? 
until I need to like be hospitalized. You know, it's just this fear of like, maybe it was just a bad day. Maybe I just woke up on the wrong side of the bed or I had a difficult interaction at school or work. Cause at that point, then I was in school training. So that fear is very real. And now I see that as like, we need to, you know, have support when we have, let's say postpartum depression or anxiety, but then almost like past the year mark, we need like a recovery plan or we need treatment specifically for that, like wound that we can carry from that experience. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know if listeners can hear, but I've been nodding furiously throughout this past few minutes, exactly like when I listened to your very first episode on your podcast, because everything you were saying resonated, you know, from the breastfeeding, that sort of agitation of like, I've got to get out, I've got to get out. Funnily enough, I was going to move on to this next about in your podcast, you talk about the year sort of anniversary and that feeling of grief for the maternity leave that you didn't enjoy or the experience you didn't get to have. And that is something I still feel profoundly. And I think every birthday and like Stanley is going to be 10 this year. So this is like, still haven't quite gotten over it, but yeah, I feel a grief there. Absolutely. And I think it's helpful and important to acknowledge that grief never goes away. This grief that we feel for those experiences in the first year is the same type of grief we feel when we lose a loved one, right? It's just a different context. And we know when we lose a loved one, that grief never goes away. We just kind of grow and and change around the grief. And so it's not necessarily as acute as when it first happens, it will always be with us. And I think I had to do some, you know, reconciling with that, that those feelings will always be with me. When I say trauma wound, I'm very visual. And so I think of, you know, at the beginning, when we have those post-trauma symptoms of like intense fear or avoidance or flashbacks, things like that, it's like an open wound. It's oozing, it's bleeding. It's not nice. And then with help, with time, with therapy, sorry, I, I shouldn't say time because time it does not heal all wounds. That's not a thing. But in that time, if we're going to therapy or doing the work to heal the wounds, it will heal. And then we will have a scar. So when you look at that scar, it's not oozing, it's not bleeding. It's not sore to the touch, but when you look at it, you know, where you got that scar, you know, when you look at it, oh, that was my experience of postnatal depression or anxiety. And that sucked. It wasn't what I wanted. It was terrible, but I'm not also brought back to those feelings of intensity from that time. So that's kind of like what I like to see for myself and for people, you know, I'm supporting is, okay, can we think about those times and and acknowledge those feelings, but not be like in those feelings of intensity anymore? Yeah. But to acknowledge it and actually it's okay to feel grief. It's okay to mourn the start of motherhood that you kind of expected or had hoped for. Another incredibly important point is about, you know, how recovery isn't a linear thing. And I think once you've been through something so dark, it's very, very easy that as soon as you get a blip, whether it's 
circumstantial, something that's happened that's very stressful in your life, whether it's societal, like with the horrific war in Ukraine, the pandemic, or whether it's, you know, it could be hormonal, it could be to do with your cycle, but you're just having a really bad time and you're struggling following a period of feeling emotionally well. It is terrifying that fear that, you know, oh my God, I'm going backwards, I'm slipping back to that. And something that I learned through attending Liz Wise's support group that I found very, very helpful was her talking about the fact that it's not like an upwards trajectory. You know, if you looked at a graph of somebody's recovery from postnatal depression or anxiety, it is literally jagged up and down, up and down, up and down. And again, that's okay. That's okay. It's not great that you feel bad, but don't beat yourself up about it. It doesn't mean that you're not making progress. Absolutely. Because I think, again, like when we're in, I call it hell. For me, my personal experience with postpartum anxiety and depression was hell. I would not wish that on anybody. It was the worst time of my life. So for me, when you get some relief from that and you're like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Like I remember when my medication started kicking in and, and I talk about it, like the fog was lifting, you know, the clouds were parting and I could actually see what was around me. I could see my sons. I could see them for like themselves, like for their, you know, cute, funny, smart, gorgeous little beings, as opposed to you know, these two kids that were annoying me and getting in my way because I was trying to nurse my little one. Right. And so that to me was like, I was just so grateful to be able to see them again through this like loving lens and to be able to connect to the world around me and connect myself. And so then when we, like you said, like have that bad day, it's a panic. Like, oh my God, what if this means I'm going back to hell? Like to that time that was hell for me, I can't do it, right? It's terrifying. Like I had a visceral reaction and uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I had a very visceral reaction a couple of times when I had, um, I had gone off my medication to try to be normal, quote unquote, or I don't need medication anymore. And it did not go well. And so that visceral reaction of when I wasn't feeling well, I remember it like it was yesterday. And I almost like, I was very close to saying to my husband, you need to take me to the hospital. And so I started my medication again the next day. And you know, unfortunately I had to wait three weeks to get better. However, just knowing like, okay, I've started my medication again, it's going to kick in. I have to take care of myself here. I got to slow down was helpful. And I made it through. But in that moment, that fear is just so intense. And that whole sort of thing about medication is, I remember it's something, you (laughs) know, and again, that's probably like a whole podcast into itself, But, but that feeling of, how long am I going to feel like this for? How long am I going to have to stay on the medication? Is it going to make me artificially happy when I'm not happy? And, you know, gosh, nine and a half years on, I'm still on the meds. I've tried to come off them and it took me back to hell. And I've just come to terms, you know, now, if I need to take them for the rest of my life and it gives me me back, 
I'm fine with that. If I was diabetic, I would need insulin. I'm asthmatic, so I need my serotonin inhaler. I'm fine with that, you know, so be it. It's incredible, your description of when you came up for air, because for me, I remember trying to describe it to my husband. And to me, it would feel like sort of surfacing, resurfacing above water after being submerged. And it's that feeling of suddenly being able to breathe and gulp air again and have a clarity to everything and just this feeling of like a weight off your shoulders and I I could have that in a day a single day of like being really bad and then actually everything's okay everything's okay and I'm sure hormones played a big part of that with me but it didn't matter you know even if it was like okay a week before my period was due I'd be so far down a deep black hole you know, I just think this is the reality. This is the reality, not feeling emotionally well. And funnily enough, one of my best friends, we both have this thing called the fanny club, right? where if one of us is like in that deep, dark hole, the other normally knows, okay, you're going to come on in about a week's time. So my job is to remind you that this is not the reality, that actually everything's okay. So we have a a fanny alert was <laughs> beginning to slip down. <laughs> I love that. That is amazing, right? It's like, <laughs> let's just put this out there. Let's be honest about what we're experiencing. And then, yeah, how can we help each other, right? It's like, it's just talking. It's sharing our realities. It's being honest with ourselves and with the people around us about how we're feeling. And that's not always easy, but I, I love that concept of, you know, I, can I be a part of the fanny club? <laughs> you can totally. Yeah. Because also, you know, WhatsApping and saying like, I'm being a fanny at the moment. It's shorthand for saying everything's overwhelming. I want to run away. I don't see there's a way out. But anyway, yeah. And, and we haven't even talked about things like menopause and Thank God people are now beginning to be much more open about, you know, it's really debilitating. It can be horrific. (laughs) You know, how the hell did our mothers go through it and just keep quiet about the whole thing? Exactly. Right. Um, I see that Davina. So Davina McCall is my favorite. And when I was living in Northern Ireland 15 plus years ago, I started, you know, uh, doing her fitness DVDs and oh my god they're amazing yeah <laughs> Vicky I own every single one of them and they're upstairs in my living room <laughs> do you know what I think I've still got like I'll, I'll take the dust off it but I remember there was one with hot chip it was before I'd given birth it was before I was pregnant and I remember Davina saying these leg kicks are worse than labor they were like lunch kicks yeah. and I remember thinking my god if labor's worse than this I don't I don't want to go through it <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yes. Oh, anyways. But so Davina is talking a lot about menopause, which is, which is nice, right? Like it's all these experiences, right? I think it's so important to, to talk about. And when you talk about those hormone shifts and changes, um, now I know that those have a massive impact on symptoms of ADHD. And so is this a good time to kind of talk do you know what this is a beautiful segue you can tell that you're a podcaster because you have literally you're like 
I'm over here. We're on a tangent. We're talking about, you know, <laughs> leg kicks. I'm just going to segue over here and bring us back on topic. Sorry, but I don't mean to like, I, I want to let you. No, it's beautiful. You can totally take over the driving because you're so much better person than I am. And you beautifully brought it into it. And what I'd love to know is, first of all, what prompted you to seek a diagnosis for your son? Like, how was that presenting itself? That's, it's so interesting because, like I said, I would always say, oh, my son's so much like me. He's so much like me, like in every way. And then I remember we went to an open house at the elementary school for, you know, kindergarten. So he was like three-ish, like just three. And so they had tables set up like with things to do for the kids, like cutting and writing their name and da, da, da. My son was the only kid that did not do any of the activities. He had never put pen to paper at home. Like he, he never wrote his name at home or anything like that. Um, he just walked around the class and looked around and, you know, what's this and what's that, you know? So I was like, oh, okay, there's something different here. Like not in a bad way, but just, okay, interesting. So two years later, when he was in first grade, um, his teacher, you know, said, uh, it might be a good idea to get him tested. So I said, okay, so we got him tested. And then again, when, you know, you're going through all the questionnaires, um, they ask about the parents, like about kind of your past and your schooling and how did you do in school? And I'm like, oh, not very good <laughs> um, when I was younger. And, and so, but it's, it's different too, because biological males and biological females do present differently, very differently in ADHD. And so I do have hyperactive, I'm hyperactive impulsive type. And if you know me, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, <laughs> hence the like not able to stop talking, but you know, as a girl, I wasn't like jumping off of desks and, you know, throwing chairs in the class or whatever yeah when you hear about ADHD you, you think about boys being really boisterous mm -hmm. disruptive putting bricks through windows that's absolutely of thing. and that's like the biggest stereotype it can be one facet I mean my two sons who have ADHD have never put you know a brick through a window or like they're very extremely active and don't stop until they fall asleep absolutely um but in school, they've been able to manage their behavior. Like they're not bouncing off walls. They're not, yes, they roam around class, like walking around and getting up kind of even in the middle of the teacher talking. However, they're not like throwing chairs or, you know, things like that, which is just interesting, right? At that time I was in college. I was back in college <laughs> Uh, doing my social service worker diploma um, to go into mental health and addictions work and become a counselor. So I was really then kind of learning more about it and, okay, this is interesting and thinking about it for myself and what this means for me. And I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I still have all my old report cards from school. So I pulled them out and I looked through them because the psychiatrist said, you know, if you look at your report cards and they all say like, you talk too much or, you know, your grades weren't great or whatever. He's like, chances are, because your son has it, you probably have it. Okay. So I go look through all my report cards. Christine just needs to focus and try harder. Christine talks too much. Christine interrupts her peers. Um, 
So that was my life. And looking back, I remember I loved school. I love learning. I love reading. And I would try so hard and never like reach my potential, so to speak. And always feeling like I'm missing the mark. I'm missing this something. There's something I don't understand, something I don't catch. Always kind of feeling like there's some like basics in life that I don't get. And so before knowing about ADHD, I was like, I think I'm dumb. And I do not like saying that. I don't like saying that. But sometimes I would say that to myself, like, I think I'm just not smart. But now I know like ADHD has nothing to do with your intelligence. And actually I am really intelligent. It's just how my brain works. And yeah, I miss out on some social cues or there's some social constructs that I don't understand or I don't abide by because I don't agree with them. Like letting a podcast host, you know, ask their own questions on their podcast. Oh my God, no, please stop apologizing. My God, you did me a massive favor because I was just thinking, how am I going to bring it around to this? And then you did it so beautifully and eloquently. And you're like, hormones, ADHD. But this is absolutely fascinating to me. And I mean, certainly I think there was some sort of neurodivergent awareness week because there's been a lot of press about the benefits. And I know LinkedIn, they've done a collaboration with, I think Richard Branson Mm. was connected to it, where you now actually have dyslexic mind as a quality that you put on your LinkedIn profile. And I love that because you know, my background is, is creative, you know, television industry. And we're constantly being told, you know, think outside the box, be innovative. And how can you be innovative if you have the same type of people with the same type of experiences, with the same type of cultural and socioeconomic backgrounds? You're always going to come up with the same ideas. And I know with colleagues and friends who are neurodivergent in, you know, lots of different ways they are brilliant because of that it is a quality that they have you know and that should be celebrated nobody should be penalized for that or feel shame or guilt you know everybody's wired differently when it comes to you know things like the spectrum most of us are somewhere on that spectrum you know and there's so much light or shade when it was suggested to you that you or your husband might have ADHD, was it presented to you in the form of like a checklist, a test, like the Edinburgh survey? No, it was really just the psychiatrist saying, well, if your kid has it, one of you has it. So figure out who has it. And then that's the problem with our system is finding support for adults with ADHD is like impossible. And there's no supports that I mean, you can see it. So we have our healthcare system, which is similar to the NHS, um, where our healthcare like is paid for. And so you can see a psychiatrist to diagnose you. However, the wait list for me, it took over a year, you know, and which is typical, right? For healthcare systems such as ours, but you can pay someone privately, you know, a thousand dollars to do an assessment and all that. But At the time I thought to myself, well, I'm studying to be a counselor, so I can just figure this out and I can like teach myself and my son coping skills 
um, because that's what I'm going to do for a living and it'll be fine. It wasn't fine. The other thing too, that I will say is that at that time, interestingly enough, I was on my SSRI for my anxiety. I also didn't know that I would say the majority of people I've read stats of 40% of people, 60% of people with ADHD have a comorbid diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder. What does comorbid mean for us? Yeah. So comorbid is just like alongside. So, uh, it just means, you know, you have ADHD and then you have anxiety. So they're alongside each other. So a, a comorbid diagnosis, you have two diagnoses. And so, um, looking back again, I can certainly see that I think anxiety was present my whole life. I just wasn't aware of it. Right. And both of my sons also have generalized anxiety disorder with their diagnosis of ADHD. So I was in school at the time, and then I was really focusing my work and my training on addictions. It just became my passion at that time. And I, I, you know, studied in that and I worked in that. And so I developed a bias about ADHD medication. And I will say that now I understand that that bias was incorrect. It was influenced by what I was seeing in my everyday work where I would have a lot of people and especially like I did, you know, to be gendered, I did have a lot of male presenting clients come in and say they were diagnosed with ADHD at at a young age. And then they took the medication. It didn't work for them or, but then they were all using like hard drugs, like cocaine, methamphetamines, things like that. So then I developed this fear that if my son took medication, he would develop this addiction. And so a kind of like a negative side of ADHD is like you get turned off of things very easily, which, you know, some people might call boredom. Right. But it's like, if I don't agree with something or I don't understand something, I just kind of put it on my mind and I don't really think any further of it. And so I just shut the idea down. And so I thought, I'm not going to bother getting a diagnosis because I don't want medication. I'll just deal with it. It's fine. What do I need it for? And I didn't put my son on medication either. I was adamant. And interestingly enough, when the psychiatrist, you know, he got his diagnosis and then asked like, okay, you know, I recommend medication for your son. And I said, no, we're not doing that. And he's like, okay, well, I'll see you never. And that was it. Like we didn't get any other supports. He was not referred to counseling. Um, there was no like counseling covered by our healthcare system. So if he wasn't taking medication, he wasn't being followed by anyone. And so then I was left as a parent with ADHD to figure out how to help my son and like what to do. So I did get him into a program for anxiety and it was like a group with other kids and they learned skills and stuff, which we still use those skills today. It was amazing. It was so wonderful. And I think that really helped him with like managing his anger. So again, as a girl, I look back and I see like where anger came out for me and like sometimes rage too. Um, but a boy with testosterone, that's biologically different, right? So he would, you know, get upset, like someone hurt his feelings and he would slam the front door or, um, be like so much more physical, 
right? So I was like, buddy, like we can't, we're, we're not doing that. Like we got to figure out how to manage, right? So even just honestly, deep breathing, like taking moments, like he really latched onto those skills and still uses them now. And I was nervous. Like one day he's going to be a teenager and now he's a 14 year old and he's not, my kids are not throwing their Xbox remotes or like punching walls. Like that's not a thing in my house. So I'm very, very happy about that. And also how brilliant to have like the tools to self-medicate, you know, yeah. rather than, and that that's not to say there's anything wrong with medication, but um, I mean, I know very, very little about ADHD and I'm fascinated to learn more. But I do know my brother had a friend who was a girl. I think she had ADHD. And this is like back in rural Scotland in the 1980s. So there was like really yeah. lack of understanding. I mean, it was hard enough for me being a vegetarian in the 1980s, let alone having, you know, neurodivergence. And I remember she was given Ritalin, I think. And that just turned her into a zombie. It was really yeah. bad. And that's the thing, right? Is like hearing those stories, like those are the stories we hear. Those are the stories I knew of. And then starting to work with people who were addicted to stimulants, like illegal stimulants, and they have ADHD. So I just put this like idea in my head that if they go on medication, this is what happens. And so I didn't do my research. I just impulsively said, no, that's it, shutting it down. And so my son like as he progressed, fell very far behind in school. Like he was at least two grades behind. Um, and that was a struggle for me. Like that was really hard for me to reconcile because also I can't sit down and do homework with my kids. It's really, really hard for me to do that. And so I felt like I'm a failure. I'm not helping my son. I should be like homeschooling him, you know, to get him to where he needs to be. And like, I just, I can't do that. And so then I started researching about medication. I started actually sitting down and reading. And then what I learned from the literature is unmedicated ADHD is what can lead to addiction because, right? right? Because our brains are just, everyone's brains are, are seeking dopamine, but ours is kind of like turbocharged really because our dopamine levels are low, Right. So we're seeking that, like whether it's food or sex or, um, you know, drugs or whatever that is, alcohol, physical activity, you know, we're seeking that dopamine hit, right? And so if you take medication that helps with your dopamine production, which then helps with focus and concentration and organization and, and all those wonderful things. And so the more I learned, I thought, okay, I think we need to talk about medication. So during the pandemic, my youngest was in second grade when the pandemic started. So my youngest and my oldest did no schoolwork for six months, six months, because it was like school was shut and it was like, do it at home. It wasn't like led by the teacher online. I, I was going to ask you how you found homeschooling. There must have been impossible. Torture. Well, I tried it for a week. I made this big chart and I was like, we are going to stay on track. It's going to be amazing. No, the chart was in the garbage within a week. And do, do you know what? So many parents are going to be going like, yeah, 
yeah I mean like literally the first day where you're like we're going to do this we're going to do a bit of English then we're going to do that and then it's physical exercise we're going to do yoga with Adrian on YouTube and yeah same here <laughs> lasted about two yeah, days <laughs> absolutely and I was like okay and then the second year you know of course like they're a bit behind but then they were back online but it was like teacher-led homeschooling like you know kind of like zoom right and uh my youngest couldn't sit in the seat couldn't sit still like I noticed his classroom behaviors like of walking around wandering around so I was working from home like with my private practice and so I was downstairs in a session and, and then the sessions finish I come upstairs and my son is on the couch watching tv and he has drawn a massive picture of baby Yoda like he colored in this coloring photo, taped it to his chair in front of his classroom. And he let baby Yoda be in class for him because he was not having it. You know what? But that to me is thinking outside Absolutely. the box. I love the creativity there. I love it. He hung it up in his room on his wall. I was like, this is amazing. I took a picture. I put it all over Facebook. I loved it. Amazing. I couldn't, I could not get mad at him for that. So, um, so then I was starting to think, okay, he's also behind in his reading and, you know, his schoolwork. Then at that point, my son, my oldest had like two years before high school. So I thought we've got to do something here. And I attended a talk for parents with kids with ADHD. And then one of the psychiatrists was talking about parents with ADHD. She was saying that executive functioning is 100% inheritable. Our executive functioning 100% comes from our parents. And that's all these functions in the front of the brain that are impaired by ADHD. And so I was like, oh, and she said, the best thing to do for your kids is to get your own diagnosis and your own treatment plan. Because how are you supposed to help your kids if your symptoms are not under control, right? I went to my doctor probably a couple days later and got the referral in and I thought, okay, I want to try medication for this. And then I was like frantic because you're telling someone with ADHD, they have to wait a year for an assessment. Yeah. That's very counterintuitive. <laughs> yes. It was absolute torture, Vicky. Um, so my youngest got his diagnosis. We got my oldest reevaluated got them both started on medication. And then what I learned through my research was those instances of people being like zombies on medication, it's because the medication wasn't right for them. The dose was too high or the brand was not right. Right. Like we know with any type of mental health medication, it's, it's such a trial and error process. I've been on like three or four different medications for my anxiety because some don't agree with us, or maybe they work for a while and then they kind of lose their efficacy. Right. So it's a challenge. And that's why I think people struggle a lot with medication compliance. Um, they're like, Oh, I feel great. I'll just go off my meds. Right. And then like myself, I did it. Right. And it was not great. So anyways, fast forward, I got my diagnosis finally, which was only last year, last April. Oh my God. Yes. And started medication thereafter. And it's been life-changing. So I'm able to actually do the things on my to-do list. 
So I have a big giant whiteboard in the middle of my main floor so I can see it from anywhere. And so I have to look at it like probably a hundred times a day, right? Like what's next before the medication would be like, I would put, let's say, I, I try not to put more than three things. So if you're listening and you have ADHD, do not put more than three things on your to-do list. <laughs> you can have your long to-do list of everything you need done. Cause if we have ADHD, you have a hundred to-do lists. Um, but I definitely don't put more than three things on my list for the day. But what was happening was I put my three things and then it's the same three things on the whiteboard every day because I don't do it. Right. Or <laughs> I'll say, okay, today I'm getting caught up on my case notes or I'm going to vacuum the house or, you know, whatever. And then it just something better comes along. Right. So I started taking medication and then all of a sudden I was checking off the things on the to-do list and my husband would get home and I'm like, babe, I vacuumed the house or like I did the dishes. And he's like, wow, like not in a sarcastic way. You know, after let's say the first week, he was like, yeah, I really noticed that you're doing more. So it's definitely been helpful. It's been helpful for my children. They are able to focus and concentrate in class. They are no different personality wise. I am no different personality wise. I still feel all of my emotions. Um, so do my children. And, you know, we've had to make tweaks here and there um, to the dosage level. A big complaint is like not being hungry, like kids not eating a lot. And my youngest could do with some bulking up a little bit. So they were kind of worried because he did lose a bit of weight at first. So it was just kind of playing around with the dosage. But after a couple of weeks, he got used to it and it was fine. So again, if you're concerned about that as a parent or for yourself, it's a symptom. It's a side effect. You do get used to it. It does go away. And if it doesn't go away, that's just a sign to reassess your medication. It could be like going down in your dose, or it actually could be going up in your dose. Obviously you work with your doctor on that. So that was eye-opening. And then I had mom guilt that came in and said, you should have put your son on meds from day one. And then maybe he wouldn't be so behind. And now he's in high school and he's behind. Whereas now I am seeing my youngest is catching up and he's coming more to his grade level much sooner. So yeah, that's kind of that story with medication there. But it's absolutely fascinating. I don't know if you've listened to the episode with Mark Williams. I think it's split across two, actually, Daddy Blues. And Mark is such an amazing guy, but he had a very late diagnosis of ADHD. And again, he said it was life-changing, that validation. So that is why I kept getting labelled as the bad kid at school or the disruptive kid at school or not reaching my potential you know, that's why I would get distracted and muck around, you know, because of the ADHD and that's how it manifested itself in him. The only thing I could compare it to, I guess, is when Liz or somebody said to me, you have postnatal depression and the illness is why you feel X, Y, and Z, you know, that is a classic symptom. And suddenly you feel you can take some of that self-blame off you know that feeling of like I'm dumb I'm stupid or why can't I get it right and actually it validates you 
and validates your experience, would you say? Absolutely. When you can put language to it, you know, language is what we use to make sense of our lives and our world and the people around us. So when we can put language to our symptoms, for example, oh, I'm not a bad mom. I don't actually hate my kids. It's just these intrusive thoughts that I get because of postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety. And so it's like, that wasn't Christine that like resented her boys for being in the way that was the symptoms. That was the illness. And so absolutely same thing with ADHD, where I can look back and go, oh, that makes so much sense, right? Like I'm not dumb. And yes, I sometimes don't pick up on social cues or those social constructs that don't make sense to me, or that's why I interrupt. It's like, cause I'm excited or it's not cause I'm a jerk, right? <laughs> it's not like, I don't want to be mean. I'm just like so excited. Right. And then also we can then say, that's the reason for the way I behave or the things that I do or the struggles that I have, not an excuse. Right. But now I can say, and what do I need to manage those symptoms? How do I take care of myself so that I can show up as best as I can for my kids or for myself or for my work? for my partner. Now I can figure it out instead of just spinning my wheels and thinking like, just try harder, Christine, you know, and then I try harder, but it doesn't work. So then I just, I'm in this shame spiral. Interestingly enough, Mark Williams, he talks about as well, his experience with postpartum depression as a dad, which I love. Yeah. Yeah. Mark, if you're listening, I would still love to have you on my podcast. (laughs) But also interesting then too, to see those intersections of ADHD and for example, postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety. And that I definitely see how it impacted my symptoms. So especially in biological females, we have hormone fluctuations week to week, which is hard, right? And so I didn't know this until like last year, but Some women actually have a different dosage for their medication in the first half of their cycle and the second half of their cycle. Wow. That's fascinating. Yes, I know. Um, Because again, those low estrogen levels really impact our symptoms, right? So then I would tend to then be more, um, definitely more anxious. Um, I noticed the focus and concentration is just not there, you know, just really struggling to put things together, execute a plan or get things done in the house. And I now know that that low estrogen is impacting my functioning, my actual executive functioning. And then also with ADHD for most of us, again, just like autism, it's a spectrum, right? So I think that's also the hard part is that every single person presents differently. But for me, Um, I feel my emotions in really big ways. Mm. I have big emotions and like, I love hard and I hurt really hard. We know too, like, even for people without ADHD, we can be more emotionally sensitive, you know, in those certain times, especially leading up to our period post ovulation. And so in ADHD, that's also heightened. And so again, if, if you think about males who, really from like puberty to death, 
yes, their testosterone levels shift and change throughout the day even, but it's not the same impact on their functioning as it is for us. Whereas if you think our hormone levels shift week to week, you know, our whole entire lives and we're dealing with that internally and, and trying to manage that like week to week forever, you know, that's a big impact. And I think that's a big intersection with ADHD that I've literally never heard anyone talk about it, except this one podcast where this woman said her medication dosage is different throughout the month. And I was like, oh my God, that's incredible. Well, even you just saying about estrogen makes me think, is it a depletion of estrogen levels that makes menopausal brain fog, you know? And I I was just going to say, I'm absolutely fascinated in this subject and I'd love to look into getting an endocrinologist on to talk about hormones so that I could you know just get my head around it all but also just things in terms of like anxiety just generally I think people don't quite understand how that overthinking and that fear that sort of going into that panicked fight or flight mode can stop you know if if you're feeling the effects of postnatal anxiety or postnatal depression how just even things like washing up or getting out of bed looking after a kid feeding you know the anxiety of like what to cook for dinner I know it sounds like a really puerile thing but just the overthinking of like nutrition and am I getting the right thing and it can be exhausting and if you take somebody who you know actually was good at their job got things done and then with the effects of that, even just keeping a house together or getting out of the house feels like such an uphill struggle and it's exhausting. Does that resonate at all? Oh my gosh, Vicky, completely because, and that's the thing where like ADHD symptoms and anxiety are so similar. Like you said, right? When that anxiety comes in and we're in fight or flight mode, our prefrontal cortex shuts down, right? So the front of the brain shuts down because we're like, I just need to focus on staying alive. So even if the threat outside is not actual life and death, our body doesn't know that our body just thinks perceived threat, perceived threat. Exactly. And so it's shutting down those functions of like organizing and, you know, executing tasks like cooking dinner, uh, doing the washing up that requires like, okay, I need to wash the dishes. Then I need to dry them. Then I need to put them away. Again, it sounds simple to most people, but we take it for granted that that uses our executive functioning. When anxiety comes in, that is shut down because we don't need to do the dishes. We just need to stay alive in that moment. Wow. So then imagine if you go into that situation with ADHD where your executive functioning is impaired. It is impaired. It's an impairment. And I see how that comes out of my life. I also see how the way my brain functions, like I can get a lot of shit done in a small amount of time that people around me don't do. And I'm happy about that, right? It works in great ways sometimes. Um, And so if you think about too, even just going into parenthood without postpartum depression or anxiety is overwhelming. I was 25, 26 when I gave birth to my first. So before that, it was like, yeah, I'm living my best life. I can do whatever I want. I can eat cereal for dinner, like, you know? Yeah. And I can go to work and be a functioning human. And then when you have a baby, 
that is all executive functioning. I need to like learn how to feed. I need to like changing diapers or getting them to doctor's appointments, booking the appointments, going to the appointment, like getting prepared to go to the appointment. That's all executive functioning, interacting in social situations, mom and baby groups. Yeah. I can tell you now, I was never in one single mom and baby group. I attempted to do like a mom group on Facebook and I just couldn't cope. Like it was just too much, like too many messages and too many people and too many, you know, fears and concerns. And I'm soaking all of this up. I couldn't do it. And for years I was like, what is wrong with me? Like, am I missing like the mom gene? Like, I'm just not a good mom that I don't want to be like, I have like two mom friends. Like I know like two moms from my kid's school. I'm not that mom that like knows all the moms in the school or all the parents. Right. And that's okay. That's fine. Yes, it is. You don't have to be part of the PTA. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) Except when like people like, oh, like not everyone reacts as nice as you. Right. Like simply like, oh, like you, you don't do that. Like, no, I don't. Anyways, so all of those things that are so overwhelming in parenting, it's like times a hundred when you have ADHD. And so even when my kids started school, I was so overwhelmed. I had to pack their backpack and like, we got to put your clothes out for the next day. Even though I was taking them to daycare before that, from when they were a year old, it felt like the transition felt so hard for me and transitions are hard for people with ADHD. Now I know. And the panic and the fear and the paralyzation when you're like, oh my gosh, what does he need in his backpack? What do I put in his lunch? What do I do? And then God forbid, if in the morning he's taking too long to get dressed or, you know, the, the panic, right. Every morning, like every morning. And so that's, where parenting and ADHD, like I see it's, it's so hard to cope. And like, I just don't think we talk about it enough. And because of that, people don't get it. People don't understand. Like, so that fear and that overwhelm you get when you have a baby and you know, you're like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And then eventually that goes away. That kind of stays with me. Right. So yes, there's like a lot of places where I'm chill and I'm like, we're cool. We got this. It's all good. When my kids are sick, I don't know. I'm just like, it's okay. We'll figure it out. In other circumstances, I'm not chill. And I think that'll be there (laughs) forever. So I just think there's a lot of intersections with ADHD, mental health, perinatal mental health, and parenting that are so hard. I will say this, Vicky, that cooking and worrying about dinner for so many years was torture And again, before ADHD, I was like, what is wrong with me? Like, what is the big deal? Look at your friends. They cook like elaborate meals and they cook proper food every day for their kids. Like, why can't you do that? And finally, like in the last year, my husband, he does a lot. He's amazing. And, and so he cooks a lot. And so I said, can we make an agreement that you're in charge of dinner? And I'm just taking it out of my mind. And he was like, okay. And so now it's like officially everyone in the house knows that don't ask me what's for dinner. Cause I don't know. And I will eat whatever's in front of me. It's fine. 
<laughs> but that actually cleared up so much brain space for me. Yeah. Mental load. Yes. The mental load and took off so much stress off my plate. And again, it's like cooking, right? It's like, what's the big deal for me? It ruins my whole day. I'm thinking when I have a client at 9am, you know, I'm in session. I'm like, Oh shit. What am I going to make for dinner? Oh, I didn't take the chicken out. Oh, now we can't have chicken. Now I have to pivot. And like, well, what do I have that's thought out or Vicky? Oh my God. I'm I'm (laughs) nodding furiously again. And especially because I'm going to have to pick Stanley up in like 15 minutes from football camp. One of his best mates is coming back. He's um, got really unusual tastes and I'm now feeling the sinking feeling of like, what am I going to feed them? This boy is such a lovely boy, but he'll eat things like swordfish and spaghetti carbonara and stuff, but like chips, baked potatoes, sandwiches, bread. No. He has a very fancy palate. The first time he came back for a play date, and it was like, what, what do you like to eat? And he was like, meat and sweets. Oh, no. Now I'm vegetarian for stars. So like, yeah. <laughs> Oh my God, I'd love to have you back. And I was going to say, if anybody's listening and the whole thing about ADHD, whether it's parenting a child with ADHD or being a parent with ADHD, if this is resonating with you, please do get in touch with me via bluemumdays at gmail.com because I'd love to have you back for maybe a Q&A or something like that. I think that would be so cool. And um, thank you so much for for educating me on this because I had no idea and I you know I really think so much resonates with me of like what you've been saying a lot of it really has sunk in so uh, thank you so much for being a great guest how can people get in touch with you um so you can get in touch with me on instagram so at perinatal wellbeing underscore ontario You can also email me info at perinatalwellbeing.ca. Perinatalwellbeing.ca is the website. So that's all for my not-for-profit where we try to provide like low barrier, low cost services to people in the perinatal period living with mental health struggles. I love connecting with people. If anyone has questions about my story or their story, like I'm so open, like please get in touch. And Vicky, thank you so much for opening this discussion here because I do believe it's so important and I would come back every week if you wanted me to, because I love talking with you. I actually discovered you, Christine, through your podcast, which I just think is the most incredible listen. How can people listen to you? What's your podcast called? Yes, my gosh. Thank you for reminding me. Um, so it's called Perinatal Wellbeing. And I, I use those terms because I want to cover this is my goal. I want to cover everything. Like, let's talk about every topic, you know, possible related to perinatal. Um, So we do have a lot of discussion around mental health, um, you know, mental health challenges and struggles um, and, you know, different experiences, loss, um, also talking about postpartum sexuality coming up soon, talking about things like the pressures of sleep training and, and kind of what that's looking like right now. That's a big thing right now in the space. Um, so yeah, just, just all different topics like that. And really at the heart of it, having people share their stories, right? Like you and, um, you know, those real authentic stories. So we can hear that and say, yeah, me too. Oh my gosh. Like I've, I remember thinking that too. And 
I thought I was a bad mom and okay, well, maybe if it's a symptom, maybe I'm not a bad mom. Maybe it, it is just a symptom, right? Someone else experienced it too. So yeah. And, and that's why it's so important to, to share our stories and, and normalize the conversation around it, that it's okay to have these feelings, especially the, the frightening ones like intrusive thoughts. Yeah. Thank you so much. You've been such a fabulous guest. Thank you, Christine. Thank you so much, Vicky. If you've enjoyed this episode of Blue Mum Days, please like and subscribe. It really does make the difference in helping other people find it. And that means helping.